The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Hello and welcome to Sport Box. Here are your headlines today. U.S. President Joe Biden warns against the Israel-Hamas war escalating into a wider regional conflict while telling Israel it would be a big mistake to reoccupy Gaza. Global stocks falter, but the S&P 500 still records its second straight positive week, while geopolitical uncertainty pushes Brent crude back above $90 per barrel. JP Morgan, Citi and Wells Fargo beat on the top and bottom lines to kickstart Q3 earnings while asset manager BlackRock sees its first quarterly net outflow since the early days of the pandemic. But the CEO, Larry Fink, remains confident. I'm a hopeful person. I believe that in 10 years and 20 years, humanity is in a better position than it is today. With that view, I want to own hard assets. I want to own equities. I want to be a part of this economy. Poland's ruling party looks set to fall short in its bid to stay in power, with former European Council President Donald Tusk claiming victory with a path to a liberal coalition government. This result might still be better, but already today we can say this is the end of the bad time. This is the end of law and justice rule. We are watching a lot of geopolitics as we start out a brand new trading week. And of course, a fairly muted response across markets last week to the events playing out in the Middle East. But nonetheless, still a rise in some of the oil and gold trades, not to, of course, mention the uh, stronger U.S. dollar. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken will make a return visit to Jerusalem today, capping off a marathon weekend of diplomacy. His push came as Iran-backed Hezbollah launched attacks on northern Israel and Israel responded with its own strikes in Lebanon. Iran's foreign minister has called on Israel to stop its attacks on Gaza, warning that the war might expand across the region. President Biden has warned Iran against escalating the war between Israel and Hamas. In an interview broadcast on CBS's 60 Minutes, he also made his strongest public statement yet, urging Israel to exercise restraint and not to occupy Gaza, stressing the need for a path to a Palestinian state. Israel says approximately half a million residents have left northern Gaza for the south as it gears up for the next stages of its war with Hamas. More than 4,100 people have been killed since Hamas launched its incursion a little over a week ago. Speaking on NBC's Meet the Press, U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan had this to say about Israel's expected ground offensive. I'm not going to get into our, our private conversations with the Israelis, but we are not interfering in their military planning or trying to give them instructions or requests specific to their military planning. What we are doing is saying privately what we've said publicly, which is that all military operations should be conducted consistent with law of war, that civilians should be protected, that civilians should have a real opportunity to get to safety, and that civilians again, who have nothing to do with Hamas, because Hamas is a brutal, vicious, savage terrorist group. It does not represent or reflect the will of the Palestinian people, that, that civilians get access to food, water, medicine, and shelter. And we are working hard on that. It is a key priority for our president. 
Still a lot of uncertainty around the geopolitics in the Middle East and whether there's a wider conflict that markets are dealing with and whether investors need to, again, reprice some of the assets across the board, namely in commodities, but also in safe havens. When it came to the U.S. market action last week, we saw a front-loaded reaction on the Monday session. By the close of the week, still some concerns, I think, still in the marketplace. But uh, worth noting, we did eke out a small gain of just over six-tenths of a percent on the Dow, slightly firmer on the S&P by about one percent and on the Nasdaq. NASDAQ over the trading week, we had a gain of about 1%. Of course, a choppy old Friday. Don't forget, we had other factors in the mix too. Monetary policy, investors closely eyeing what some of the Fed officials were saying and very mixed messages. Number one, that perhaps the long-end rates were doing some of the work for the Fed and perhaps more rate hikes were not going to be necessary. But again, as I think a lot of investors have watched this war spilling out across the Gaza Strip, that it may have implications for food and oil. And that energy price story, of course, has uh, ramifications for just whether there's still pricing pressures that have been abating of late. When it comes to uh, the major boards, that mixed picture that we saw, the repositioning has taken place. In that Friday session, materials were down 1.5%. Again, a nod perhaps to the geopolitics here and impacting uh, some of the resources components of the market. Over the course of the trading week, as you step back and take a, a bigger lens, the real estate sector was one of the better performing ones, the most negative, again, the consumer staples areas. So perhaps that is a, a look at uh, what could happen if we see the oil and food price story regroup and push higher from here. Treasuries, I mentioned that mixed picture and the commentary from the Fed. Again, it was a little bit of everything we had because don't forget those inflation numbers. The headline was slightly higher than the market had anticipated. So again, just pushing back again some of that Fed narrative around the longer end rates, which incidentally also retreated over the course of last week. 4.65 where we were perched on that 10-year. Don't forget we were travelling 4.88% at the higher levels uh, more than a week ago. So the market just pulling back on that level as it's trying to adjust to some of the geopolitical risks and also what it's hearing in terms of uh, the commentary from the Fed along with the data that's been crossing last week from the inflation side to the dollar. We've had a slightly more elevated dollar over the past week. Morning session, though, sterling and euro trying to push into positive territory, about a tenth to the upside on both trades. So 121.5 on cable, 105.24.22 roughly on euro dollar and on dollar yen rates. So we're still shy of the 150 handle that markets have been closely watching for intervention levels. And on dollar yuan, we're 7.30. So just a slight tick high there. To the WTI and Brent trades, don't forget oil futures have been leaping in that uh, Friday session into uh, the weekend, up about 6-odd percent. But morning session, we're at 87.71, so we are perched higher. Brent back above that 90 handle and closing in on $91 as we eke out another small gain. Last week, we were slightly higher. Brent was up about 1.7% over the week. At a fraction higher for WTI, not quite the same tune, about uh, 0.1% over the trading week. So the market just put a prop underneath some of these oil trades. To the Asian markets for the Monday session as they deal with this wave of geopolitics and the tone coming out from the Middle East has been fairly bearish around this ground offensive. You can see Japanese stocks at this point 640 odd points to the downside closely tracking that oil story in the geopolitics down 2%. The market elsewhere more modest to the downside ranges half of a percent on Hong Kong stocks, four tenths down on China. Similar vein about a third of a percent coming off the ASX in Australia. The only calls, European markets are the mix. So far, we're looking slightly brighter. We're chasing a little bit of green at this point. And you can see across on the FTSE 100 here in the UK, 25 points to the upside. The early picture, Arabile. Good morning. Karen, thank you so much for that. Well, JP Morgan CEO Jamie Dimon says 
The world may be facing, quote, the most dangerous time in decades. This as geopolitical tensions flare up in the Middle East and persistent inflation and high interest rates impact the global economy. Speaking on JP Morgan's latest earnings call, Diamond said the Israel-Hamas conflict, as well as the ongoing war in Ukraine, will likely continue to weigh on energy and food markets, further impacting cost pressures and sending interest rates even higher. Now, U.S. lenders J.P. Morgan, Citi, as well as Wells Fargo all posted a beat on third quarter earnings. That's as customers continue to spend and borrow, despite interest rates sitting at two-decade highs. J.P. Morgan posted a 20% jump in quarterly revenues, coming in at just over $40 billion, while Citigroup's revenue did manage to climb nearly 10% on the year to $20 billion. But... Wells Fargo was the standout. It saw earnings skyrocket 60%, 6-0, to $1.48 per share, with revenue climbing just over 6% to more than $20 billion, sending its shares up more than 3%. Now, Wells Fargo CFO, that's Michael Santo Massimo, Massimo uh, told CNBC that businesses and customers have been holding up better than expected in a high-rate environment, but also warned of some early signs of slowdown. When you look at the overall economic environment, it's certainly been much more resilient than we would have expected at this point. I feel like we keep saying that over and over as we go through the last you know, year, year plus, but it's certainly true. And I think you can see that come through you know, in, in the results. I think you know what we gave in terms of our, our guidance is is what we you know is our best guess at this point in terms of the way the year will end up. Uh, but it will be a function really of where you know where everything shakes out on deposits and pricing uh, for the rest of the year. BlackRock shares shared over one percent in Friday's trade as volatile market conditions saw a sharp pullback in quarterly inflows. Overall net inflows for the third quarter came in at just over $2.5 billion. That's compared to almost $17 billion for the same period last year. Meanwhile, net outflows from its lower-fee index funds totaled $50 billion as investors choose to park their money high in higher yields and low-risk assets. BlackRock CEO Larry Fink told CNBC that investors see a lot of risk at the moment. We have a better understanding of the texture of what's going on in the market through our ETF platform and our global network. And, and the, unquestionably, we're seeing, you know, the, my barometer of hope and fear with all the geopolitical issues, we're seeing more fear, more people pulling back. And you're actually seeing that in the yield curve. You're seeing the yield curve flatten. Right. And the yield curve is flattening uh, because, uh, A, people think we're closer to the end of rate hikes. I'm still calling for rates, long rates to be above over 5%. I think the numbers of inflation this week really shows the stickiness of it. Let's get out to Octavio Marenzi, CEO of Opimas. Octavio, great to have you back on board with us. Let me just kick off with that warning from Jamie Dimon. He started out talking about this may be the most dangerous time the world has seen in decades. But specifically, he went on to talk about food, oil and global trade potentially being impacted. What do you do with that warning? Because we know there's been a ton of geopolitics out there. Is this another big negative for banks that there could just be more uncertainty impacting client behaviour? 
Well, I don't think it's really a negative just for banks. I think what Jamie Dimon was talking about was more negative for the economy overall. And I think what he's afraid of is basically that we have a spillover from the Gaza conflict. Iran gets pulled into it, Syria, maybe a couple other regional powers there. And that has a very detrimental impact on the price of oil, which will skyrocket. Basically, the, the Strait of Hormuz will get closed out, oil won't get out. We'll see oil trading at, what, 150 or something like that, which sounds completely absurd. And that will, of course, have an enormous damping effect on the economy and drive inflation way, way up. So those are the real risks. I don't think the banking sector in particular is in the firing line for that, but I think the economy in general. So I think it's a, it's a very broad-based warning rather than a specific one to one sector. Octavia, when it comes to the banks itself and uh, JP Morgan, you could see some of the good was certainly uh, expanded and some of the bad kept in a tight range. And the good here for the banks being the NIMS. Uh, J Jamie Dimon talking about over-earning on net interest income, but below normal credit costs that must normalise over time. What do you make of this sweet spot that JP Morgan's seeing at this stage? Well, I think a lot of the banks are seeing this. Basically, all of them are seeing that their depositors are not demanding higher interest rates. I mean, they're starting to. But basically, there's still a lot of people who are willing to sit on deposits in the banking sector and get 0% on their on their money or 1% or 2% on some sort of savings account. Um, and that is, of course, very, very beneficial for the banks and has driven that through the roof, their net interest margin. So that's been very, very positive for them. But we are starting to get to the end of that cycle. I mean, if you look at sort of the quarter-on-quarter -quarter change, that's definitely slowing down. We're starting to see people pull their deposits out demanding higher interest rates on the deposits they leave with the bank and that is going to I, i'm not going to say it's going to crush i mean this this play has lasted much much longer than i expected i have to admit i didn't think depositors would be that sticky at zero percent interest rates that they're getting on their checking account but it has been an extraordinary play so eventually they're going to start pulling money out and they are doing that now they are demanding they're chasing higher interest rates and putting money into money market funds or bond funds or bonds directly to try and get higher returns there and that's going to have a very detrimental impact on bank earnings in the coming year or so, but it's a very slow process, it seems, a very, a very slow process, but it's going to have a detrimental impact. And it's not clear what's going to take over in terms of driving earnings growth. There is really nothing. Uh, the investment banking trading side of things is not doing terribly well. Uh, we're seeing credit card deposits and then lending going up way, um, but corporate lending is kind of flat and not terribly exciting. So it's not clear where the next round of growth is going to come from for the banking sector. So that's a, a, a big cloud on the horizon for the group of banks there in the US. Octavia, good morning to you then. then. So would you be worried then about the unrealized losses sort of in this sector then? Because if, if things aren't necessarily looking too good in future, they can't continue to earn their way out of those unrealized losses then, surely? Well, the unrealized losses actually look at the moment, at least what they've put aside and provisioned in terms of credit losses, seems quite uh, low and, and tame. And in fact, their real losses on their credit card portfolios or their real estate and uh, mortgage portfolios and things like that look very, very low by historical standards. So on that front, we're doing very well. But you did see in these earnings now that these banks were starting to put away more money for loss reserves, not substantially more, but it definitely has an increase. So they're looking at this and saying it can't carry on this well. This kind of goal Goldilocks economy that we've had for the banking sector isn't going to last forever. We're going to have to put some money away, provision some money for credit losses. But so far, those credit losses have not materialized. Uh, and that's been a big surprise, too. We really thought in some sectors, uh, particularly commercial real estate and things like that, we'd see those loan portfolios start to get hammered. But they haven't. They've held up pretty well. Uh, and the consumer's held up very well, is spending well, is borrowing more money, and the default rates remain low. So, so far, so good. What happens in the future? Yes, if the economy has a downturn, we're going to see a lot more defaults and they're going to have to provision a lot more and pay out a lot more in credit losses but so far that hasn't happened and that is really why we're seeing these tremendous earnings coming out of banks like jp morgan at the moment and even wells fargo
Octavia, when you start talking about uh, CREs or, or commercial real estate, I mean, you, you end up talking about regional lenders and they have uh, some word to say this week as some of their earnings will perhaps be out as well. They're the ones that can't put away as much capital then as the bigger banks. Do you get worried there? Definitely. I mean, the regional banks, first of all, have different capital requirements. So they've been able to be a bit riskier in terms of the lending activity. Uh, they've also had flightier deposit bases in the sense that they've had been much more exposed to sort of wholesale deposit markets and institutional investors and money markets and things of that sort to generate and finance their activities. Now, the largest banks have a very sticky base of big retail depositors who don't move their money very quickly. The unpleasantness we saw in the market back in March, all these regional banks got hammered, was basically a question of these big depositors, institutional depositors saying, I can get more money someplace else. I can put my money in a three-month US Treasury and get 5%. Why would I leave it in the bank and get 4% and take a big risk that you're going to go bankrupt? So I'll take my money out. I'll get a better return in the Treasury side of things, and uh, things will be golden for me there. And that, of course, hit the regional banking sector really, really hard. And I think it's going to carry on. We're going to carry on seeing deposit flight into the bigger players. <clears throat> and so people like JP Morgan will benefit from that and deposits will move from the smaller regional players into the larger ones where there's sort of this perception of, of, of safety and things cannot go wrong there. Octavia, speaking of safety, I wonder whether those US banks also pick up on that theme versus, uh, say, even European banks. And one of the warnings in the city numbers was that, about the story of desynchronization, saying, look, if you look at the US, you've got an implication here of a soft landing, which may not be the, the case, given you've got cracks starting to emerge in some of the lower-end consumer scores. But if you look at the euro area in the UK, that picture is distinctly more negative. This was the line from Jane Fraser over at City. Is that a risk now? We've had a fairly decent performance from European banks and US banks that with this uh, desynchronization, now you've got the US lenders, the top premium US lenders are going to be better positioned versus, say, other banks across in other countries. Definitely. I think the top US lenders are really well positioned and, and they've done well, but that's going to come to an end gradually as well. So the the enormous net interest margin they've been able to generate is going to go away over time and sort of flitter away uh, over the course of the next six months, six or 12 months, I would say. And then we're going to see sort of a bit of a confrontation with reality. And that's really why the stock prices for these big banks have not done better. I mean, the only one big amongst the big top ones has really outperformed the S&P 500 over the course of the past year has been JP Morgan has done that quite readily. But talking about Citibank, I mean, really, uh, Citibank's uh, stock performance has been rather disappointing. And in particular, since Jane Fraser took over, I mean, she took over what in, in March of 2021, City was trading something like $75 a share. It's now 40% down. Uh, so Jane Fraser has her work cut out for her. She's going to have to show some sort of turnaround there. And she's put into place a big cost-cutting reorganization exercise to achieve that. But uh, at Citibank, there's going to have to be some change there made to, to achieve that. Uh, Wells Fargo is kind of interesting because they were able to increase their, their net income quite dramatically in large part because of cost cutting, very effective cost cutting. So they basically took $1.2 billion out of their income statement in terms of expenses and did that really effectively without damaging the business. So that's the kind of example that Citibank is going to have to follow to get its earnings back up as well. Octavia, one of the elements here was the, the amount of capital being uh, now forced to be locked up on balance sheet by the regulators, this because of the wash up from the earlier problems with the regional and smaller lenders. It was the CFO over at, um, at JP Morgan that was talking about the regulators push to increase capital for those sized over 100 billion in assets, saying that this would require JP Morgan's capital to be locked up as well. What does this mean in terms of returns for the sector here as we also talk about com compromised earnings from investment banking at this point? 
Well, if the capital requirements go up very substantially and the regulators have some proposals out there to really sort of turn the screws there and force these banks to put substantially more capital to the side, of course, it's going to have a negative impact on earnings. But the exact details of that, I think, are unclear at this stage in terms of how they want to implement that. But there are some proposals to really dramatically increase the capital reserves the banks have to have. And I guess it's kind of the knee-jerk reaction we see from regulators every time there's some sort of little crisis or some, uh, some, some tension in the market and some banks go bankrupt. It's increased the capital requirements and then gradually over time they sort of reduce them back down. So there's a knee-jerk reaction immediately after a crisis and then gradually we get back to normal and we reduce the capital requirements or we find ways of getting away around those capital requirements by renaming things and relabeling them and, and, and achieving that. So I think we're seeing much the same here go. I don't think ultimately we'll see this have a major impact in terms of banks' balance sheets and earnings potential. It's going to be a fairly minor effect. Thank you very much for giving us some reaction to the numbers we've seen so far from the banks. Octavio Merenzi, CEO of Opimas. Well, still a lot more earnings news to get into, especially this week. Earnings season in full swing this week. We'll have more results from Wall Street. Goldman Sachs and Bank of America reporting on Tuesday. Morgan Stanley as well on Wednesday. So we'll get a load of some of the financials still to come. We'll also get third quarter numbers out of Tesla and Netflix. That's coming out this week. Now for a full breakdown on what to expect from this week's key earnings reports and what, is, what it means for your money, subscribe to our premium service at CNBC Pro. Head to cnbc.com pro or scan the QR code on your screen now. Coming up on Squawkbox today, China's central bank keeps interest rates unchanged but signals more liquidity support for the banking system. We'll have the latest after the break. Plus, the return of a familiar face. Poland's opposition parties, led by former EU Council President Donald Tusk, declare victory in a general election, promising a new era for the country's relationship with the EU. We'll have more later this hour. And could we be heading towards a 1970s era of stagflation? We'll discuss more with Henry Allen, macro strategist at Deutsche Bank Research. You can tune in for that interview at 9.30 CET. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts. Now, Russian President Vladimir Putin will meet his Chinese counterpart in Beijing this week. Putin will attend the Belt and Road Forum starting tomorrow in what will be the, his first overseas trip since the International Criminal Court issued a warrant for his arrest in March. Now, the two countries declared a relationship with no limits days before Russia invaded Ukraine. The EU's top diplomat, that's Josep Borrell, has wrapped up his own three-day visit to China, telling reporters that Europe takes China very, very seriously and expects the same in return when it comes to geopolitics and trade. Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi told Borrell the two should boost trade and investment and avoid decoupling as trade investigations from the bloc rile Beijing. 
And the PBOC has boosted its liquidity support to the banking system, conducting medium-term lending facility operations worth $108 billion. China's central bank also kept interest rates unchanged as it looks to balance ample liquidity while stabilizing the yuan. Now, Sam Vardis joins us uh, with a little bit more on this one. Sam, it's all in an attempt to try and reach that 5% growth target anticipated for this year, isn't it? Absolutely. Good morning to you, Arabile. As you say, it's a bit of a balancing act for the Chinese Central Bank. The PBOC, as you say, has been trying to strike the balance between keeping liquidity in the system very ample, as they have been trying to support this recovery, as we've seen signs that it is certainly on track, but it does remain fragile. We've seen that certainly in the data, but also to keep the uh, stabilisation of the Chinese currency, as we have seen a great deal of depreciation pressure uh, on the UN of late. So uh, right now we are looking at uh, 7.30.90 on shore against the greenback relatively unchanged against the US dollar uh, in trade uh, today but uh, certainly we did see uh, the PBOC injecting uh, liquidity to the tune of uh, around 789 billion yuan as you said into the system via the medium term lending facility rate but also uh, through uh, the seven day reverse repo at 106 billion yuan too uh, but we did see actually the PBOC keeping that uh, medium term lending facility rate unchanged today as widely expected we do know uh, that there are constraints around Monetary easing at the moment over in China, with of course the US, uh, other you know economies around the world heading over in, in the other direction. We've got that widening yield differential between uh, China and the US as well. There are worries about capital outflows and further depreciation pressure uh, on the Chinese currency. And so we've got to remember that the medium-term lending facility rate does typically act as a guide for the loan prime rate. We'll be getting that on Friday. That's the one uh, which, of course, uh, does have most new and outstanding loans which are based on and also the five-year which is uh, what typically influences the price of mortgages so there is some expectation given that that is seen as a precursor that we can probably expect to see no change uh, to those interest rates on Friday however some aren't ruling it out completely given that of course the data has been suggesting that uh, we probably need to see more stimulus uh, given just how fragile this recovery has been so far uh, speaking of that of course investors very much uh, keeping their eyes out now for that uh, Q3 GDP print will be getting on Wednesday along with the September ac economic activity indicators with the industrial output, um, the retail sales, the fixed uh, asset investment, uh, also of course the unemployment rate. We'll be getting new home prices out on Thursday. So there is a lot of data on tap this week. We're going to be watching for further signs of this recovery, certainly if it has legs. Um, but in the meantime, of course, we have had the uh, PBOC actually coming out with the new loan data, the credit demand. Uh, it does look like we have seen a bit of a pickup when it comes to that. However, that did miss, miss expectations. Um, but if you look under the hood, it did look like those uh, household loans were quite strong. Corporate loans were strong. So it does look like um, the uh, loan composition uh, remains fairly solid in terms of some of that credit demand. Uh, and it's interesting, of course, just sticking with the theme of the PBOC, Pangong Sheng, who's, of course, been over at those IMF meetings in Morocco, which you guys have been covering as well, um, has very much trying, been trying to to send a message uh, of reassurance about this economic recovery over in China, uh, suggesting that prices remain stable. Uh, we have seen improvement pick up in manufacturing and also the services sector. So more data out this week, uh, certainly for evidence of some of that. Guys, back to you in London. Well, Sam, uh, before we let you go, it's the fifth edition of CNBC's East Tech West Summit kicking off this week in Nansha.
Yeah, that's right, Karen. It's all kicking off tomorrow and uh, there'll be plenty of conversations as we've been uh, highlighting over the last few weeks in terms of uh, a bit of a pre preview of what will be discussed at these sessions in terms of AI, technology, EVs. Uh, one of the conversations that will be had will be certainly around healthcare, of course, no doubt very big business over in China, given there's about 1.4 billion people. And uh, this is something that the Chinese very much care about, but it has been very much viewed as a bit of a murky sector. There has been um, some degree, you could say, of distrust, um, certainly around vaccines. Um, there is some suggestion, criticism, uh, at least there has been in recent years, about a dated system over in China that was certainly highlighted uh, during the pandemic. And so um, in a post-pandemic era, this will be uh, critical to look at, uh, particularly in terms of how AI will drive this sector moving forward, some of uh, the technology around this sector as well. But uh, it also comes off the back of uh, what we've seen lately that hasn't been widely covered in the media, which has been uh, quite a deep um, corruption campaign uh, into the healthcare sector as well. So no doubt um, this will be spoken about as well. There has been some suggestion that this has um, very much put a lot of Chinese citizens on edge. Of course, this is a sector which is critical to social stability. And um, there's been some suggestion that given just how cash-strapped some of these local governments are at the moment, which we've been covering extensively, um, that perhaps there has been some degree um, of uh, corrupt measures in place to try to recoup some of that lost money. So there'll be plenty of conversations had, particularly uh, around, as I said, AI, tech, EVs, etc. cetera. Uh, and very interesting given, of course, we're also hearing that uh, the US is now uh, actually weighing up, updating some of those rules around export controls on chips too. So that could be uh, pretty timely given the conversations we'll be having this week. Guys, back to you. Sam, thank you very much for setting the scene for us. And if you're not able to make it to Nansha, don't fret, we've got you covered. You can head to cnbc.com to keep up with all the action on the tech universe out of China. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com or join us again on the show with me, Steve Sedgwick, and Karen Cho, weekdays on CNBC.